best way to learn Retracing your steps till you know Welcome back to Empowered Former LDS, the podcast. I'm Glenn Ostland, and this is episode three, Getting to Know Glenn. And this is an interview that Wendy did with me back in June 2019, so nearly three years ago. And yeah, maybe I would answer some of these questions a little bit differently today, but this is a pretty good representation of things that have become really important to me things that have greatly influenced the way that I see things, which obviously is only one way of seeing things, but that's what we're each here to share with each other through this podcast, right? The different ways that we see things. So this interview was done a few months before I started my training to become a certified holistic life coach, and a few years before I came across the works of Byron Katie, Michael Singer, David Hawkins, Wendy Kennedy, Richard Rudd, and a number of other authors and philosophical entertainers who have also greatly influenced the way that I see things, especially the way that I understand this whole empowerment thing. So, with no further ado, shall the youth of Zion falter? Will the enemy assaileth? Shall we shrink or shun the fight? No! <laughs> true, true to the faith that our parents have cherished. True to the truth for which martyrs have perished. To God's command, soul, heart, and hand. Hello, I am so grateful to have Glenn Oslin here with us today, and um, we're going to talk about some of his transitioning experiences, but the reason I wanted to invite him is because um, he does a podcast called Infants on Thrones, and this podcast, um, when I first listened to it, I thought, oh my gosh, it's so sarcastic and it's so <laughs> harsh towards the church. Uh-huh. <laughs> of all the blessings that have come, the best thing in my life is the companionship and coverage I get from very young men. I'm too sexy for wickedness, too sexy for wickedness. It never was happiness. Happiness. Uh-huh. <laughs> I was really a little bit offended when I was still a little baby coming in, um, you know, as, as just barely emerging out of church. And, and then I popped onto another podcast. I'm like, wow, these are some good points. And I'm, and so, but the more I listened to it, the more I started resonating and I started to have a little bit of a shift myself as far as how we can use sarcasm as kind of a healing mechanism and a healing um, for 
what happens to us during the trauma of faith crisis and faith transition. So I know that Glenn has some valuable information that we can use as we are learning to start thriving after Mormonism. So Glenn, um, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Welcome, by the way. Yeah. Okay. So I've been, I've been podcasting in the ex-Mormon space for about nine and a half years now. Uh, wow. So I, I started, I think it was probably January 2010, sometime around there. It might have been 2009. I don't really remember. Uh, but I did some things with Mormon Expression for a while and became quite a regular on Mormon Expression and then had some creative differences with John Larson and, and uh, a little bit after that started Infants on Thrones. And that's been going for nearly seven years. Yeah, I think that was, that was 2012. June 2012 is when we recorded our first uh, episode. It wasn't published until August of 2012. But anyway, and, and it was me and five of my friends all guys, all rowdy, um, obnoxious. They obnoxious. They swore a lot more than I did. Like I, I, I didn't swear. You know, <laughs> I was always really kind of kind of skittish with that. I've I've loosened up and I swear quite a bit now. It's just kind of become second nature to me in some cases. But it took a while. And and so at the beginning of that podcast, we're trying to figure out who our listeners were and what they could stomach and what we needed to edit or not. And we went back and forth on a couple of things. And, and at some point I just went, we're just going to be who we are. And it's going to, you know, people are going to have the, the reaction like you had. Um, it's either going to be too much for them or it's going to be just what they need or, you know? Yeah. Um, so yeah, so I've been doing that for seven years and it's, it's changed quite a bit over the years. It's, it's uh, kind of slowed down a bit. We've moved most of the episodes over to like paid subscription stuff on Patreon. And there's a small group of about 300 people there, but um, still, still release a main episode out to the general public, maybe one or two of those a month. That's awesome. So tell me a little bit about yourself, Glenn, like what is your like two minute version of how you grew up? (laughs) (laughs) Two minutes. I grew up in Arizona. Um, I'm the oldest of three children uh, totally loved the church uh, growing up. I, I loved all of the deep doctrine and speculation and the Bruce R. McConkie and the Nib- Nibley. And, uh, you know, that was kind of the relationship that I had with my dad. We, we don't really have a lot in common. We never really had a lot in common growing up except the church stuff. And he was the kind of guy that would read pseudepigrapha and, you know, like look for all of these clues like you were putting together. Like, do you remember one of the very first video games that I remember playing that came out on PC was something called Mist, and it was, and and in Mist you like had to solve. It was it was it was almost like a what are those things called? Like a panic room or those places that you can go to where you're trying to solve puzzles to get out of the room. It was uh, that that kind of an idea. It was escape like escape room. Yeah, yeah, escape room. That's what it is. Um, so Mist was kind of like a game like, and that's what, that's what Mormonism was in some ways. There's like all of these clues, all these different pieces that you could put together to figure out the eternal perspective and, and, and stuff. So th- that, that was a lot of the appeal of Mormonism to me. I went on a mission to Japan from 1991 to 93. And um, when I got back, I was at BYU trying to figure out what to do. And I got interested in folklore. And so I spent a year and a half at BYU working in the BYU Folklore Archives, which was really interesting. 
And then I decided to get a, a advanced degree in folklore. So I went to Indiana University where they offer a master's degree and a PhD. And for my master's thesis, I wrote about the lost tribes of Israel and Japan because that was a big legend cycle in my mission. And, wow. and for my dissertation, I wrote about Mormon humor. And I didn't finish my dissertation. I, I got a, an opportunity to work for a medical device company midway through, and I took that instead of finishing the academic route. So I never finished the dissertation. I never finished my PhD, but it was on humor. And so the question that you have about the role that sarcasm plays, um, you know, I, I can tell you there's um, the, the, my mentor at BYU was a man named William A. Wilson. A stands for Albert. He went by a nickname Bert for people who knew him really well. So Bert, Bert Wilson wrote a lot about Mormon folklore, and he wrote some about Mormon humor. And he's got a really good article if people want to look it up, William A. Wilson. Um, and I forget the title of it off the top of my head, but just look up Mormon humor. And one of the things that he references in there is that there's some, you know, you, you can't, you can't stereotype Mormons, like to think that every Mormon is going to be exactly the same or respond the same to certain things. And, and so there's some that have a high tolerance for humor and jokes and some who don't. And the, this, the, the guess or what they were speculating is that it has a lot to do with how emotionally attached you are to the subject matter that's being joked. Yes. And so if, if you're really, really emotionally attached and somebody's poking a stick, sarcastic, you know, sarcasm, I learned as I was doing my, my dissertation, comes from a Greek word that actually means to rip off the flesh. Oh. Sarcasm. <laughs> so it's, it's like a really violent style of, of communicating, being facetious, you know, not saying what you really mean, but kind of doing it, you know, in, in this really kind of sharp way. And so if, if people are, are very closely connected to the subject matter, they don't want that ripped away. They don't want that cut. Away. They don't want it poked at. They don't want it made yeah. fun of, you know, nothing. But if you've got some distance from it, then you can maybe step back and appreciate because a lot of what humor is about is, is recognizing incongruities or recognizing a sense of superiority. There's all kinds of theories yes. why something is funny. Um, and so I, I, I started thinking of humor and sarcasm as almost a wedge that you could use to create separation, like emotional distance between yourself and the subject matter. And so I, I think that that's really the, the question that you have for me is how does sarcasm separate you or, or you know, help you when you're going through a, a transition, help you create a space for healing. I think it, it creates that emotional distance between you and the subject matter. And there's so many of those, so many strings that we're attached to culturally um, growing up Mormon. I have an example. Um, yeah, go ahead. I have a friend at when you remember when Napoleon Dynamite came out? Yes. <laughs> I just thought that was the funniest thing. I could watch it over and over. Now I watch it and I'm like, I don't see what was so funny <laughs> now. But yeah. at the time, I just would bust a gut, you know, when watching him dance on stage, yeah. putting tater tots in his pocket. Um, but I had a friend come over like, you got to come over. Have you seen Napoleon Dynamite? No, you know, and she, she's in her mid thirties and she comes over to watch Napoleon Dynamite. And she's like, can we turn this off? It was upsetting her so much. 
And then she shared with me about her high school experience, and she was like Napoleon Dynamite. <laughs> so, so she grew up in I in like a rural Idaho place. That yeah, it was and so she this. was like, "This isn't funny for me, yeah. and we shouldn't make up fun of those people." And yeah. you know, and I, and so that's a good example of if you're yeah. really that enmeshed in in a Mormon culture, and then you have somebody kind of attack all the the kind of incongruencies and uh, make light of our uh our arrogance and the superiority and sure, the yeah. incongruence with how we claim to be uh like christ but yet we're so far over on the other side and, and yeah. it hurts it's it is painful and it feels disrespectful because we've made those things so holy to us so yeah, yeah I, th- I think i think it forces you to examine something as being other like being being separate from you and if you don't want it to be separate from you and you don't really want to examine it critically, it, it is kind of a painful experience. What, one of the things that I did when I was gathering data for my dissertation, I had a collection of about 35 humorous stories or jokes and I would read them. I, I, I would get together small groups of people from my ward, maybe three or four people, and I'd read the jokes to them. And... I then we'd talk about them when they were over and I'd ask them to rate each one. Do you think this was, you know, very funny, funny, not funny or offensive? You know, there was some kind of a, a scale like that. And I had one experience that <laughs> I had aspirations at the time of teaching at BYU. I really liked going to BYU. I really liked the BYU folklore archives. I wanted to, to teach BYU students about their culture, the, the, the traditions that make a Mormon a Mormon. And as I was writing this dissertation and I was looking at the way that people in my ward in Bloomington, Indiana were responding to these things, I started realizing I'm going to be saying things that are very different than what they're saying. You know, the observations that I'm making about what's going on are very different and might be really difficult and challenging and offensive to some. And mm-hmm. the, the, the best example I have for that, I was talking to a former bishop, former stake president. I think he and his wife had just gotten back from their second mission, you know, and it was with them and then their older daughter who was a couple of years older than me actually. And, and I think like the 16 year old granddaughter or something. And I told him this joke and I don't remember all the details, but it was something like there, there's a bishopric that goes camping and the, um, they're talking about what they, oh, I see what, I remember what it was. The, the bishop says, when I'm out here in nature, I'm sorry, guys, I can't help it. I've got to have a nice cold beer. And he reaches into his eyes chest, he pulls out a beer and he starts drinking it. And then he looks at the first counselor like, what are you going to do? What are you going to, and the first counselor goes, yeah, well, bishop, you know, when I'm out in nature, I really enjoy smoking a cigar. And he reaches into his bag and pulls out a cigar and he lights it up. And he looks at the second counselor and the second counselor goes, yeah, well, you know, when I'm out in itch, I really need to brew a nice fresh cup of coffee. And so he brings, you know, this coffee. And then they look at the executive secretary. They're all staring at him and he goes, well, yeah, um, I have a vice too. I'm a terrible gossip and I can't wait to get back to the ward and tell everybody what you said. <laughs> And so like how you just laughed, like that response, that's what I was interested in recording. Yeah, because it's like an unspoken thing that we all know is there. It's It's this 
the substance of comedians. You right. Know? It's this automatic response that you're like, ha, you're doing something. You're responding. And so I, and, and the, this former stake president, he did the same thing. He laughed a lot, a, a bit harder than you did actually. <laughs> really, really laughed. And so then when I said, okay, was it very funny, funny, not funny or offensive? He goes, <laughs> yeah, that's not funny. And I'm thinking, but you laughed. Like, so like, what does that mean? He, well, so explain to me why it's not funny. He goes, well, because I've been a bishop. I know a lot of bishops. They're good people. You know, it really shouldn't be made fun of. In fact, change my answer to offensive. Yeah, change it to offensive. You know, so I, I, he wasn't really talking about what was. He was talking about what should be, yeah. which tells me that, you know, there's just too much emotional distance for him to be able to put these things under a microscope and study them and analyze them and look at them with any kind of subjectivity. And I, not that I would be able to be much more subjective because I was still a faithful attending Mormon. I just had a little bit more emotion, emotional distance to be able to talk about cultural things than other people. So are. I have a, a question with that. First, it's an observation. I mean, do you think that, you know, his response being a natural and authentic laugh we don't laugh when we're offended. We, we get hurt. And so it's almost mm. like you can observe him uh, reorder his yeah. emotion to fit into the paradigm. Yeah, absolutely. And so it's like a conditioning that happens until I do this natural thing, this organic thing that happens, but uh, I notice that it's not in alignment with the, with the you know, agreed upon narrative and so I gotta scoot it, scoot it, scoot it until I can it feels like it's in alignment. And I think yeah. that a lot of the unpacking we do when we are transitioning out of the church is recognizing that we can literally be authentic all the time. And it's it's something we have to practice because we're conditioned to shut that off in the line, shut it off in in the line. But the more the further we step away from the church, it's almost like we're free to be ourselves and we're not using yeah. that crazy mechanism. We don't even know where we learned it, but we're not participating yeah. in it anymore. Yeah. And I mean, it, I think it's even an interesting question when you're talking about being yourself. I mean, what does that mean? Because it, there, is, there are certain boxes that you're supposed to check. There are certain things that you're supposed to conform to. And for some people, it's easier to conform to that than others. Is that really yourself? If you've conformed to this thing, is it really yourself? Or do you have like inclinations or propensities to do something different? Do you allow yourself to do that? Uh, you know, I, when, when I was still, and I, and I don't want to talk for everybody who's left the church, so I'll just, I'll just say for, for me, and I, I really believed very strongly that Heavenly Father was always watching me. You know, mm -hmm. there were always angels above me, silent notes taking, and there was nothing that I did that was beyond or above scrutiny. And so I, I think about this stake president who might have thought, oh, yeah, that's funny. And then went, oh, gosh, I'm being judged for this right now by these angels who are silent notes taking. Oh, he laughed at that. He shouldn't have. And so he backtracks really, really quickly. Get back in line. He should be. You know? <laughs> but, and, and so for, for me, when, when that started dropping away and I started going, okay, well, maybe, maybe I am alone in my thoughts. Mm. Maybe there's not a guy, then who am I going to be? Am, am I going to be, you know, then what are my standards? Are, are my standards my standards or are they other people's standards that I'm trying to conform to? And that, I mean, I think that's, that's still a, 
a journey. You know, mm-hmm. I, I think that's something that's still ongoing, learning how to do that. Um, but yeah, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I love what you've said there. I, I, it's definitely something to study. And I love that um, sarcasm and just being able to laugh at ourselves. I think being able to laugh at your own, you know, silliness um, is healing because at first it really hurts and how I treated people when I was in the church and how I looked down on people and how I um, just positioned myself in such a superior way, not knowing that I was doing that. Um, But now, and then after I left briefly, after I left, I was like, this hurt. It pains me that I acted like that. It hurts me that I was so condescending and mean to people and so there was a pain, and now I can look back at it, back at it and know that, yeah, that was my Mormon self, you know, and, and, and I think it's funny, and I'm okay with it, but it's yeah. just kind of that, it's an, an emergence, a transition, and it is finding myself, and it's, it's unpacking who I was told to be, and giving myself permission to just be this natural person inside, which is my first and organic inclination when I experience something. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, th- I think being able to, to laugh at yourself, it, that, that's really important to me that yeah. just that, to, to try to keep myself in check so that I'm never taking myself too seriously. Um, I, I don't know. I don't know why that's important to me. It's just really, it's just really important to me to, to be able to have that uh, perspective and admit my own foibles and be able to laugh at my foibles. I think there's some acceptance that's in there instead of feeling like, I, I don't know. That like guilt and shame for for things yeah. you can laugh at it, and that you could probably still laugh at yourself and still feel shameful. Um, but uh, yeah, that that's part of that ongoing process, I think, as well. But I think sincerely finding yourself joyfully funny in all of your faux pas and all of your idiosyncrasies and all of your crazy little dumb stuff that you do that's embarrassing to you, and being able to laugh at it instead of deliver self contempt, mm, I think, yeah. is powerful. It's a, it's a transition, it's a maturity, and it's, a, it's an adult development skill that no one teaches us. Yeah. It kind of emerges as we go through life and we make a commitment to give ourselves permission to differentiate and to... Yeah. So I, 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 I had kind of a shift about a year ago. I haven't really thought about this, Wendy. So this, this might be a little rough. <laughs> you can help me work through this. But a little over a year ago, I was reading something that was talking about self-deprecating humor and how damaging that actually is. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, so th- there, there's ways where humor can be really healthy. I think there's ways where humor can be really destructive. And if you've got a certain view of yourself that is, you're not loving yourself, you're not accepting yourself you're really really critical and you're always putting yourself down and that's mm-hmm. part of your sarcasm i don't know that that's really the most healthy yeah, thing you're that. always in a state then of insecurity and you're just reinforcing that insecurity with and and kind of hu- using humor as a as a mask or that yeah, sarcasm or shield, mask. protection of i'm going to i'm going to point out everything that's wrong with me before yeah. you kind of thing. And, and when I've thought about like, why do I do things like when I do that, why do I do it? And 
it's it's usually because I think that someone else is thinking that about me and I want to beat them to the punch yeah <laughs> so that they can see oh he's actually quite enlightened he recognizes that he's being an idiot he's right so now self aware <laughs> right so he's so self aware when really most of the time I think I'm putting that idea into people's heads yeah they weren't <laughs> they even thinking. Weren't thinking about that at all yeah <laughs> you know I was and and so it it just doesn't really I, I've really tried to find that balance between having a, a healthy sense of, you know, self humor without being deprecating, yeah. without cutting myself down. Um, and, and I still don't know exactly where that line is, but I think that's a line that's important yeah. to try and find. So some other questions here. Yeah. Um, when you were studying the this folklore, mm -hmm. what would be your take on the Book of Mormon as a piece of literature? <laughs> the Book of Mormon as a piece of literature? Yeah, or do you categorize it in, as something as folklore? How how have you uh, well, situated the Book of Mormon? What is the Book of Mormon to you? Okay, well, what what the Book of Mormon is to me is a story that Joseph Smith told. Um, and I, I mentioned the word pseudepigrapha before. Pseudepigrapha is when someone writes in the style of scripture, in the voice of a, of a prophet, like this is the lost book of Moses or the lost book of Zedekiah or you know, something like that, Zenos. There's these, these pseudepigraphal books that were written way after these people actually supposedly lived. Um, and it gets passed off as scripture. To me, that's what the Book of Mormon is. And Joseph Smith was, I think, showing through the Book of Mormon um, that God isn't dead, the Bible isn't closed, revelation continues, people can have a connection with the divine. I think that's what it kind of grew into. I, I, I think what it grew out of was his treasure-seeking, um, the the intrigue that people had um, about the the Native Americans and the connection to Israel, because that was fairly well-known part of folklore in that day and age. Yeah. Joseph Smith and the Mormons weren't the first ones that thought of the the Native Americans as having ties to the lost tribes of Israel. That, that happened long before Mormonism came around. Yeah. Um, and, and so trying to, to tell a story that would be compelling and that would explain Israelite origins of the Native Americans and maybe influenced by some of these books that you hear talked about. Um, I don't remember the names of them off the top of my head. But um, yeah, so I, I, I don't, it, it, I wouldn't consider it folklore because folklore is usually anonymous in its authorship. And, and the authorship of folklore, it's usually like created by a community or a group. Like everybody has a little say into how this is shaped and it exists in multiple variations. Um, so there's different versions of it and it's more orally transmitted than written down. Although folklorists now look at things like Xerox lore and I say now, but it's been, you know, 15 years, almost 20 years since I was in the academic study of folklore. So I'm not, I'm not sure I haven't kept up on how folklorists are thinking of things like this now, but I, I, I wouldn't consider the book of Mormon to be folklore. I would just consider it to be a, a work of art from Joseph Smith. That's in the tradition of pseudepigrapha. Um, 
So what, what I'm hearing is like it was his translation of spiritual thoughts that he was having in, in, in kind of the arena in which he was studying. Because there's so many books, it's kind of almost a remix, but yeah. it, it's amalgamated with his, own, with his own thoughts of spirituality and the cosmos and everything. Yeah, uh, or, or, or you could call it Bible fan fiction. You know, he, he, okay, yeah. he, he grew up, he grew up with the stories of the Bible and that was something that his family would read all the time. And he would sit by the fire and listen to his mom read and his brothers and say, you know, like they would all read the book, the Bible and come together through that. And he's like, I want to do this. I've yeah. got some ideas. I've heard some stories. I'm creative. And, uh, yeah, so that, that's what I, that's what I think that the book of Mormon is. Well, I noticed him even uh, some of his Doctrine and Covenants pieces about the spirit world and the nature of spirits have a lot to do with Swedenborg's work that was, mm. you know, prior to his work that would absolutely be available to him at the time. Yeah. So uh, it's it's just interesting how he's just figuring out and his ability to create stories and and uh, articulate. Yeah, I think of Joseph Smith as a mystic more yeah. than a con man. I know a lot of ex-Mormons like to think of him as a con man. I don't really think of him as a con man. I think of him as a mystic. Um, and yeah, so and Swedenborg was a mystic. I, I got a Swedenborg book a while ago and I tried to, I think it was called Of Heaven and Hell. Uh-huh. So dry. I just couldn't, I, I'm like, I really want to get these connections to Joseph Smith. That lasted like maybe 10 or 15 minutes. I just couldn't listen to the audio book anymore. I couldn't read it. I'm like, ah. It's heavy, yeah. yeah. But uh, yeah, the, I mean, and the, the Doctrine and Covenant stuff is very different from the Book of Mormon too, as far as like literature and storytelling and narrative and, and yeah. what it actually is. Uh, but yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. So what do you think, as far as when you had your, and we, I forgot to talk about, ask you to talk about this in the beginning, but what was your moment of, ah, I don't think this is true kind of thing where you your shelf collapsed and you're like, okay, I, yeah, it's hard to say. I, I didn't have, I didn't have like a big moment. It kind of creeped up on me. Mm-hmm. Uh, th- there were several small moments and um, it probably started on my mission around um, my own ambition to be a zone leader or a, an AP. And then I started seeing in other people their ambitions to be zone leaders and APs and how it made them do some kind of despicable things. And then I started seeing, oh, am I doing that too? Am I, am I going to be one of those kind of cutthroat people that status like this is really important to me? And so I started getting jaded because I, I started seeing that the, the, the principles of charity and love that we were supposedly espousing weren't being uh, applied <laughs> in every area. And this is before prop eight, you know I mean? We're talking about like 91, 92, 93 yeah. on my mission. Um, and, and then when I started studying folklore and I started learning more about what religion is and the role that religion plays in people's lives cross-culturally throughout history. And I could see the similarities in Mormonism. So for example, there was, there's a, a guy named Sir James Frazier who wrote a book called The Golden Bough. And The Golden Bough does a lot of comparative mythology from around the world. And he's got a section about magic. And 
I, I, I'm trying to, I, it's sympathetic magic, which basically means it's a sympathy. It's, it's that things at a distance can have uh, an impact on each other, even though there's a distance between them, they're not touching. And there's two primary branches of sympathetic magic, homeopathic and contagion. And the law of contagion just means that something comes in contact with it. Its essence is transferred from one object to another object. And then, you know, you've got this kind of like magical essence, you know, like I've got the guitar pick of John Lennon. And so somehow that's yeah. magical because he once touched it. Yeah. Uh, or homeopathy is in that in the sense that James Fraser used it was um, the similarity. That's what the homeo means, the, the similarity. So like a voodoo doll, you create it in the image of a person. And then because there's that likeness, that similarity, it can have this sympathetic power over space and time. And so I started learning about these principles and that, 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 that Fraser, he, he would do this cross-cultural analysis of these magical practices or belief systems across cultures and, and I started recognizing, oh, that those generalities exist in Mormonism too. Yeah. The way that we lay our hands on somebody's head to give a priesthood blessing, and there's especially as a young man, of power. there's this transference of power that we yeah. even create these priesthood charts that like go back to who was the first person who touched the person that touched you, that touched that person, that touched, and it all goes back to Jesus. And, <laughs> you know, so he's that, it's that, law of contagion that yeah. um, I experienced firsthand. Ha ha. Um, you, and then you have homeopathy and things like using pure uh, oil, olive oil to represent the purity of <laughs> purity <laughs> of yeah. pureness. And as a way to, when somebody's sick, you put this consecrated oil on their head to, dispel the impurities and you know and i started seeing that in the the sacrament and just all these different things that we were doing i started seeing rites of passage that cultures do um where they introduce they, they bring in somebody and they to initiate them they go through some kind of a liminal experience um that's like time out of time this magical transformation takes place and then they're reintroduced to the group with a new identity. And you see that in marriage ceremonies around the world, graduation ceremonies around the world. You see huh. it in temple, you see it in baptism, you see it in all of the, the ordinances that we do. Um, so I, I just started recognizing these patterns and going, oh, okay, so Mormonism isn't really all that unique, like I thought it was unique, like yeah. I was told it was unique. It, it has these parallels. And it just slowly started unraveling um, the, the, the man, I just started, and then there were things that just didn't make any sense to me. Like I, I remember getting into an argument with my ex-wife about blessing the kids when they were sick. And I'm like, they're not that sick. <laughs> and <laughs> we'll wait till they're almost dying. Then give them a blessing. <laughs> sure. But I mean, they're not that sick. And, and what, like, you really think that a loving father in heaven isn't going to want them to be hit like a loving father in heaven is going to wait for me. Yeah. Like, well, if you'd bless him, I'd make him better. <laughs> yeah. I, I would have saved him, but you didn't ask. Uh, yeah. I don't really believe in that kind of a God. And I, why would it have to be me? Why couldn't you do it? Yeah. Why, why couldn't you bless the kids? I and, haven't had the transference of powers. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so things like this, like God's going to listen to somebody that's had, I, that doesn't really make all that sense to me. And so it was just questions like that, that I was constantly asking. And I was teaching gospel doctrine and I, I really wanted to be thorough 
in my lessons. I remember there was one lesson about the three degrees of glory because we were teaching the Doctrine and Covenants. And so I wanted to go back to the JST that was in Corinthians. And I started reading Corinthians and I recognized um, there's a a dual structure that's created in 1 Corinthians 15 because it's this question of... um, why is there a resurrection? I think that's really what the chapter is about. And, and Paul or whoever the writer is pretending to be Paul and that says uh, there there's life and there's death. There's mortality, there's immortality, there's corruption, there's incorruption. And so it's this, it's this binary structure that he's building throughout that chapter. And in one part, he said there's there's the heavens and then there's the earth and in the heavens there's different bodies there's sun moon and stars and in the earth there's different types of flesh there's man and fish and birds and uh, beasts and i went okay well hang on a second sun moon and stars are part of the heaven category which is called celestial because celestial means the heavens and the other column is the earthly or terrestrial. So we've really got two columns here, the celestial column and the terrestrial column. And the Joseph Smith translation comes in and goes, oh, yeah, by the way, there's also a celestial column. Yes. And I went, what? How, how does that work? And so I, I went back. I tried to read this, this dualistic structure with this imagined third category, and, and it made absolutely no sense to me. Like this was a, this was a misunderstanding on mm. Joseph Smith. And I, you know, I, I was a graduate student at the time and I'm thinking, was I, do I understand this better than Joseph Smith did? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and then I'm like, Oh, wait a second. I've got a lot more education. I, I live in a day and age where there's a lot more understanding than what Joseph Smith had at the time. And, you know, so it was, it was just a series, a lot of these kinds of things that, that happened that, kind of led me out so of the just church. You thinking and thinking and thinking and, and thinking and thinking matching and, and matching and you're like, okay, yeah. <laughs> there, and, there comes a point where there's so much, the collection is too heavy and you just say, okay, well. And, and I, I also, I'm not the kind of person that does very well being quiet. <laughs> you know, so if I'm thinking things, I want to share what I'm thinking and I want to engage people in discussions with it and not, not as a way that I want to like railroad them and say, hey, my way of seeing this is the right way. What's wrong with you? Get with the picture. But to say, have you seen this thing about First Corinthians with like the dual nature here with terrestrial? What, what do you make of this? This doesn't yeah, make any sense. Can you help me understand that. this? And uh, nobody. Like my bishop couldn't, my dad couldn't, people in the ward could, they just like, sun and moon and stars. I'm like, sun doesn't mean celestial. That's exactly my experience. Terrestrial, you know, it's like, so, so being in church and not being able to really say things the way that I felt about them, probably the, the, one of the last fast and testimony meetings that I was in, the last time that I bore my testimony in church was November, 2010. And I remember it very well because it was after Boyd K. Packer's infamous, why would I love the Heavenly Father do that to anybody? You know, <laughs> oh, just like slamming LGBTQ group. And I was really bothered by that because I had, I had recently 
learned about a guy that I'd grown up with in my ward who was transgendered. He was born a woman and then he had a sex change and he was a active member. It was like this big secret in the ward. And I went and I talked with him and he told me his whole story. And I just, I had so much love in my heart for him and, and the struggle that he went through was amazing. And he wouldn't talk about it. He couldn't talk about it because he was afraid that if he crossed the brethren, that when he was resurrected, he'd be resurrected in the body of a woman. And that wasn't, he, he said, Glenn, have you ever looked through a Halloween mask and you know that people see you differently than you feel on the inside? That's how I've been my entire life. You know, so, so like that compared with the Boyd K Packer thing just really crushed me. And, and so after that conference, our first counselor in the ward got up to kick off fast and testimony meeting was, you know, every single conference gets better and better and everything the brethren have to say is just awesome. And there's some people that want to, they want to pick and choose the things that they like and they don't like, but you can't be a smorgasbord Mormon. It's all or nothing. And I was the first person to get up after he said that. And I went, hang on a second here. Don't talk about me like I'm not here. You know, like I'm one of these people. We're here in Bloomington, Indiana, where Indiana University is just a stone's throw away. We're getting educated. You're saying that I can't think, that, that I can't, you know, going back to what we talked about earlier, Wendy, about being yourself. Like this is myself. I, this is what I do. I challenge ideas. I, I take it very seriously, but I want to do it in a playful way, of course. That's just my personality, but I'm still taking this stuff seriously. And there are things that are said in general conference that I really love, and there are things that I can't stand. And so I told the congregation the story about the transgendered guy. And, you know, I did. So I, and I've done episodes on this on Infants on Thrones, these little mini-sodes. I've, I've done them years ago. I've told these stories. But um, so that, that was, that's my long-winded question, Wendy, to what was the thing that what brought went down? Huh? There, there wasn't one. There were lots. So can you tell me kind of like what's your emotional history? As far as what have you watched yourself emerge to from when you started the transition out and you said, okay, it's time for me to stop attending and I need to find myself outside of Mormonism. Like what do you, can you like identify the chronological emotions that you had as you were up into this point? Cause there's still probably emotions that are linked to the whole experience. Yeah, I'm sure there are. I don't, I don't know that I can package it quite that, that neatly. Um, I didn't really ever go through an angry phase. Like a lot of people go through angry phase where they feel like they were lied to. And I think, I think, I think that's because of the way that I understood folklore and the way that I understood tradition and how for me, if somebody is inculcated into a false tradition, it's not their fault. Yeah. You know? It's just what they believe. And it so I was able to give people that was a pass. done to you maliciously. Yeah. yeah. Well, and, okay, I'll just let you know before you go on. Yeah. When I listened to my first Infants on Thrones, I don't even remember which one it was, but I was like, these are just a bunch of angry men. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I think it's interesting that no, you're not angry. You're just no, and no, and and I mean, it'd be interesting if if you went back and listened to that first one to hear my role in that group of guys. And then we we did add Heather later, <laughs> but but it was mostly a bunch of guys, and there were some really angry ones, and some that would just like I I always felt like I was quite moderate um, comparatively. There were times where I'd get upset and I'd 
kind of go railing on something. Mostly I would do it with little quick witty things that I would say to, you know, like stick a knife in something and like, I don't know. But, but I, I, I never, I never was really angry. I was never really angry at Mormons. I, I think I was really disappointed in just hypocrisy mm-hmm. and, and the way that really atrocious attitudes would be draped in the language of love. Yeah. Like that, it's that, that's not really love what you're talking about here. Um, so I, I could be very strident in my opinions, but I don't know that I was ever really angry. So, so I'm trying to think though, Wendy, your question about my emotional trajectory. Um, it was so wrapped up in so many things. Like I, I was not in a good marriage. Um, and the, the role that the church played in my marriage where I, uh, when, when we would be fighting and I would say, let's pray, let's kneel down side by side and really placate the Lord. I asked the Lord for help. She just kind of like roll her eyes and be like, fine. And so we'd do it. And I'd offer up this really sincere heartfelt prayer Amen. And then just like right back at the fighting. I'm like, that didn't help. I didn't do anything. And there were so many nights that I would just lay like perched on the edge of my bed with all this like distances. I've got my back to her and she's got her back to me. And I'm thinking the hymn, where can I turn for peace? Because I, I, I'm thinking, oh, I should pray. Well, that never helps. Where, where can I have peace? And it just became like this haunting hymn. So there was a lot of sadness and despair in that, but that's more from a bad marriage than it is from, from the church. Um, so it's, it's hard for me to separate that out. Is there a worry? Worry? Like where, what's going to happen to my kids? Where, where do we go from here? No, I, I'm not much of a worrier. Um, I, I, I always felt like God was a very loving God and things would be worked out. Like, people that didn't get baptized when they were supposed to, or maybe their hair floated up in the immersion and nobody caught it. You know, God will will work it out. We'll be all right. We'll be okay. Um, So I've always kind of had that, that approach. And I didn't worry about um, my kids' salvation. I didn't, I never really worried about hell. I never really worried about like the different degrees of glory because the way that I thought of the degrees of glory is their degrees of glory. <laughs> you know, even, <laughs> even the celestial kingdom is better than what we've got right now. So right. what, what's the big deal? Why, you know, why is everybody running around with the sense of urgency that we've got to do missionary work and save the world? I mean, didn't Jesus do that through the atonement? Aren't, isn't that what the good news is that everybody's been saved? Uh, am I understanding these stories wrong? Yeah. Um, so, I, I would say that the most predominant emotion for me as a, as a Mormon was always detachment. I was, I was always a detached observer. Um, yeah, I, I guess, I don't know. There were a lot of times I was frustrated. There were a lot of times where I'd get annoyed that people would do dumb things that, but then I just get annoyed with myself for being so judgmental and yeah. And that's really why I stopped going to church. I just couldn't, I just didn't enjoy it anymore. I was making up excuses to not go. You know, yeah. Oh, I'm, I'm feeling sick today, honey. Like, Oh, again. Yeah. <laughs> you know, dump a little bit of hot sauce in the toilet. I threw up, you know, all those kinds of tricks. So what about your parents informing your 
family that I don't believe anymore? Um, well, with my, you know, be, because I was doing the, the podcast, I was doing Mormon Expression and I was doing Infants on Thrones. My mom started listening and um, she and her husband eventually left the church. Um, my younger sister, who's 10 years younger than me, she left the church. My, my brother, who's five years younger than me, he left the church in high school, so it was never really a thing. My dad's still in the church, uh, he and his wife, and they're very faithful. And they know that I do the podcast, but they, they've tried to listen a couple of times. They just can't. It's something we just really can't even talk about. And, I, and I, I approached my dad with a list of things. You know, I, I did the, I think it's fairly common for people to write a letter Mm -hmm. I tried, tried because there's so much information swirling around. You just kind of want to get your hands around it and just try and get it all in one place, which is, I think what Jeremy Reynolds did with the CES letter. Sure. You know? Yeah. And, and um, so I, I did something similar and I wrote down a bunch of things. I think there were like 46 things that I don't like about the church. And then I tried to balance it out with as many things as, as I did like about the church, but I think I only came up with maybe 32. So I, I wasn't able to like evenly <laughs> balance it out. And I sent it to my dad as an email because I was living in Tokyo at the time. I, I lived in Tokyo from 2007 to 2010, and this was going on there then. And my dad was just really offended because he didn't have that emotional distance between himself and his beliefs. And he saw that what I was doing was challenging his beliefs, AKA challenging him, yeah. Yeah. saying, I don't like these things, so therefore I don't like you. And he, he wasn't helpful at all. He just, he just got hurt and then he got kind of sarcastic, but in the very dismissive kind of, oh, you think I'm an idiot kind of way. Like, no, I don't think you're an idiot. I, and he's like, you think I haven't ever struggled with these questions? I'm like, great. How do you <laughs> tell me, talk to me about it. Yeah. And uh, so that, that was just a failed experiment. We've never even tried to revisit it. Um, so we, we just always have kind of, I mean, pretty superficial conversations when we get together, which is sad, but it's, it's about as deep as we can go. Well, that was going to be one of my questions is when you kind of pursue something that's so kind of in your face or so like what, what I'm doing with the subscription right now and being able to step into a place of I coach people who are transitioning out of the church yeah. when I still have family members that are still in. And so um, they're not, they don't want to know what I do. They, they have their own picture about what it is I do. They don't realize that a lot of it is just helping people uh, learn higher order coping skills. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm not really talking bad about church. I'm just helping them unpack some things that aren't healthy and yeah. help them develop uh, more skills. And it's better for everybody. You know, it helps them heal relationships with their family. And so they don't want to know that part. They just feel like any push I give, like you said, is a push against them because I am the church, you yeah. know, our identity is so enmeshed that we can't differentiate between ourselves and the church. And it feels so offensive to us. Um, and so that, have you experienced any, um, like when you do infants on thrones, you get a lot of pushback and like, what are you, the spawn of Satan kind of thing? <laughs> no, I've never, I mean, I'm sure that exists, but I don't really ever hear it. Um, and I think it's another one of those things like with the self-deprecating humor that I might be expecting or anticipating that it's out there when really, you know, who's listening to infants on thrones, you know what I mean? Like, 
when I, when I moved back to Arizona three years ago, um, I got a personalized license plate, uh, which is TBM WSPR, TBM whisperer, because that's what they call me on the podcast. But I'm the TBM whisperer because I'm always taking the side of the TBMs. And so I thought, all right, this might be a risk. Am I going to have people throw eggs at my car because I'm the TBM? Nobody knows what it means. Nobody, Nobody it's knows. so cryptic. They wouldn't know oh, what it was. No. I've, I've, they don't I've know they fit in the TBM category. <laughs> yeah, I've had a couple of people who listen to podcasts tell me, oh, I saw you there the other day, you know, or something like that, which is nice. But I, I, don't, I don't feel like I get demonized as a result of it. Um, and if I have, I just haven't, I haven't felt it. Um, oh. But I, but I, but I, I had this thought as you were talking about people that are transitioning out of the church and trying to heal relationships with family members. And I, I don't really know much about coaching. I'm interested in finding out more about it and, and what you're doing with it. But it would seem to me from my experience, at least I've really had to, to learn how to just be comfortable with myself, regardless of any relationships that I have with anyone yes. else. And, and kind of let go of the, the efforts that I try to make to control or manipulate the way that people respond to me. Yeah. I've just got to be authentic and I've got to be okay with that, with, with who I am and how I'm doing things. And um, because there's, there's family relationships that I'd like to have. Like I, I've got a, an uncle who he's only five years older than me, but he was a stake president at like 35. He went on a mission as a mission president. And uh, I recently reconnected with him and had these grand ideas to like do podcasting with him where, you know, here I'm on the outside, he's on the inside. We could have these really healing conversations. And he's like, whoa, no, <laughs> you know, and, like I'd love to do that. And I'd love to have, I was having lunch with him and he's like, what can, what can we do to be closer? We've got to have things in common. I'm like, we've got one thing really big in common. It's like, what's that? The church. Like I, I still spend so much of my time and energy and focus on things that have to do with the church and the, the lessons that I learned in the church, you know, the, the, the principles of the gospel, if that's what you want to call it, love, charity, forgiveness. I, I totally am a convert to those things. I totally believe in those things. You know, can we find common ground and, you know, like have a better relationship and then maybe do some podcast episodes about it? You know, I think it was too much too quick with him. But, but I, you know, I, I don't feel like there's hostility from him, but there's, there's kind of an arm's distance, like concern. And yeah. You know, so I, so I don't, I don't know what to say to people who want to have a good relationship. Um, but I think, it, I think it's really about um, self mastery. Yeah, <laughs> you know? I agree. Self love, self mastery, and, and self awareness, and, yeah. and mastering your emotional well being and your emotional fluency, and expanding your willingness to see things in different ways. Yeah. So, um, what, what are some of the things that, okay, let me figure out which question I haven't asked you. Okay. What, okay, here's a question. What is intrinsically different about who you are today in comparison to who you were, were when you were really active in church? Intrinsically? 
Yeah. So not that oh, I have a beer here and there, and I guess you know, really, what what is different about your personality today um, than when you were in church? I don't know. Um, I'm I'm more free to to be who I want to be, and I've removed a lot of the obstacles that were just creating a lot of pain for me to try and be who I, you know, it's like the square peg in the round hole yeah. kind of thing. I've, I found other square holes that I can be a square peg in, you know, <laughs> yeah. um, places where I fit better. Um, I think that's, that's the biggest difference. I'm not, uh, yeah, I, I, I'm not as miserable as I was feeling just the, just that tension, that, that cognitive dissonance. Um, yeah. So I, I, I think there's a greater, a much greater sense of peace. You know, I, I think, I think my purpose in life at this point is to be the eye of any storm. <laughs> That's kind of what I want to do. No, so anytime I, I like there's that. like <laughs> conflict well, that rages around me and there's a lot <laughs> to just try to be more calm about it. And, yeah. And to just and, be the observer rather yeah. than, always the participant, but I, I like what you said in that there's not much intrinsically different about your personality. You're still inquisitive. Yeah. Still want to do the right thing. Yeah. You're still an explorer. Yeah. You're still going to use humor. You're still fascinated with folklore. Yeah. You still want to connect with people. And there's not anything that now that you've untethered from the doctrine that causes you to be a have a bad or malicious kind of attitude or propensity to do bad things. Now you, you're the one who introduced me to the Enneagram. Yes. And well, that was my next question. What are some of the things that you've used to kind of satiate your desire for truth and more development? Yeah. Well, well the Enneagram I found really interesting as a, uh, an, an indication of these innate qualities that you're talking about before. You know, like, so I, I'm a seven on the Enneagram and I don't know if you remember, it was probably about a year and a half ago when we sat down and you first told me about the Enneagram mm -hmm. and you just did kind of like a quick rundown of the different nine types. And I'm like, Oh, I think I might be this one. Oh, I think I might be this one. I, I think I'm all of them, Wendy. You know, as I, <laughs> as, as I studied more, I, I went, oh, okay, yeah, I'm a seven and I can, I can recognize the reasons why I am that way. And I'm, I'm more that way now, even than I was a year and a half ago, because as I've, as I've studied that and I've gone, Oh, this makes sense. The way that I have, you know, because the way that I've come to understand the Enneagram is that there's, there's always multiple options on how you could respond to anything around you or, or what you could focus your attention on. And there are certain reasons why you focus your attention in certain areas. And then it becomes a habit that you do over time. And it's kind of like I've, I've heard the analogy of a, of, of a dog in a big grassy backyard that wears tracks in the yard. And you just see these tracks. So like the dog could go anywhere, but it just go, it follows this, these particular tracks every once in a while. And we do that with our attention. And that, that's partly how our personalities form. And, and so I think your question about how in, am I innately different than now is just that I'm more comfortable with those 
choices with those worn paths and not feeling like, oh, they need to be straight and narrow or it needs to be only over here. I'm not able to focus on this. I'm not allowed. I'm, you know, I can be who I am and then kind of grow from that and expand from that. But first accept where I'm starting from. Yeah. Um, so the Enneagram has been um, helpful that way. Um, you know, I, I think some of the, the most influential people to me, Jonathan Haidt, um, his book, The Righteous Mind, um, The Coddling of the American Mind is his most recent book. That one's a good one too, but The Righteous Mind is just fantastic. Yuval Harari with the book Sapiens, that really changed the way that I, it did, I can't say it changed the way that I view fictions because it, it reinforced what I already kind of intuitively felt and then learned as a folklorist that, that fictions, like a, like a religious fiction, a, a myth, a religious myth, it binds people together and it, it has, plays a very important function. And so instead of being on that side of the fence that is saying, oh, religion is bad, religion is just horrible, it's the root of all evil in the world, like, no, actually, it kind of binds people together and is really, really important. Yeah, and there's a purpose. Away from it. Yeah. Like where, I, where I see a real value in what you're doing with people is like when, when you walk away from those ties that are binding you to, to your social group, what do you have? You know, you, you're, you're severing these connections. How do you reconnect? That's hard to do. It's really hard to do. I don't have an answer for that. Well, my experience has been connecting to yourself first. And yeah. that's like unplugging all of these things, hoping that when the time comes that there's something left over. What you find as you unravel it is it's, it's you. And then you're yeah. like, well, okay, this is the relationship I want to have. And you can start right. plugging it in and become the sovereign authority of your own life. Yeah. Not realizing how many layers and in, um, just so many expectations that are, are put on you and conditioning and all of this, not realizing that we're living everybody else's life, but our own. Yeah. And so there comes that time where like, who, who am I really when I don't have all of these layers of yeah. imposed beliefs and conditioning? And, and I, I think the, the, one of the most important things that I've learned through experience along those lines is that if I'm constantly trying to tailor myself to meet other people's expectations to get their approval, mm -hmm. then I'm also constantly afraid that I'm going to fall short of those expectations and lose their approval. Mm -hmm. And so there's that fear and anxiety that's always just like a constant buzz there. But if I don't focus on that and I just focus on like living my values and being who I am and I'm either accepted or rejected by people, then the people who accept me, I'm like, oh, well, you accept me for who I am. And, and I'm always going to be who I am. So I don't have to worry about that going away, you know, losing them. And those are the, the really important relationships. And then the ones that expect me to be someone different than who I am, I may want to be with them for reasons that, you know, may, may or may not be great, but that just is a big source of stress. <laughs> and I, I, I think that's, again, I don't know that I have a, a solution for that, but I, I've become much more comfortable with just, you know, if, if you don't like me, you don't like me. That's okay. That's cool. Well, and I, I found when I was transitioning that I really was afraid of losing everybody. Yeah. And 
the only one that you really don't lose is yourself, but you do stand to lose. I mean, if you're very enmeshed and your whole family's enmeshed in the church and your spouse is enmeshed, there literally are, there's a possibility that you could lose that connection with everyone. Yeah. And so you have to come to this place of, am I willing to do that to discover myself? Yeah. Am I willing to hurt everybody else in order to stop betraying who I am? It's huge. And, and is me being who I am really hurting other people? Yeah. That that, means, I mean, that, all that means that who I really am is so insufficient and so inferior that I'm going to be rejected by everybody. <laughs> yeah. Like if, 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 if they expect me to believe something in order to be accepted and I really don't believe it, but I pretend that I do, it does not pretending anymore. Is that really an act of violence towards them? You know, yeah. <laughs> like, or yeah. is it just me? I'm sorry, you guys, I really just don't believe this. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you do have to suffer the consequences. For yeah. That. Um, which is why Martin Luther King and the letters from Birmingham jail is another thing I would put in, in the list of influencers uh, along with Alan Watts. I've been devouring for a year and a half, just a ton of Alan Watts lectures. I can't get enough Alan Watts. He's Uh, good. Love him. Yeah. I like that too. What do you regret or wish that you had done differently about your transition? Like, did you have an interaction where you're like, Oh, that didn't go so well or, or you like, what would you do differently? Well, I mean, the, the, the one that I described with my dad is probably the biggest, but I, I don't know that you could have done it any better. <laughs> I, I, I don't think you can, I, I don't think you can do it without conflict. And I don't think you should do it without conflict because conflict is the teacher, you know, the, the, the pain and the, uh, you know, all, all of that stuff. It's, it's the teacher. And you got to go through those experiences to learn from them. Um, and you might have to go through it more than once to keep learning from yeah. them. Um, so I don't know that there's really anything that I have like these big regrets. Um, I, I'm, I've enjoyed my faith crisis. I've enjoyed making the podcast. I've, I've enjoyed, it's been a really nice creative outlet. And it was one of my frustrations in church because I wanted to talk about these things and I didn't have anybody to talk to in church. And, but I, I took it online with podcasts and find people who are interested in talking with me about it and listening to it being talked about. And, and so create this virtual community in this virtual group that has, you know, like most of the people, I mean, because Infants on Thrones at, at, at its height a couple of years ago, we were probably getting 13,000 downloads per episode. Now it's closer to five or six, but I don't know most of these people. Yeah. <laughs> but they're, but they're interested Yeah, and they keep tuning in. And so I, I feel like, okay, good. I've got a place to, to share what I'm thinking and then get feedback from other people. Like when we do listener essays or it's really nice when people send emails and other kinds of messages. And I've been able to meet a few people in person uh, from time to time. And that's always nice as well. Um, But I don't really, I don't know that I have no regrets. (laughs) I don't like saying no regrets because I think that sounds pretentious, but, (laughs) but I, uh, I, I accept all of the things that all the mistakes that I've made. And if I didn't make those mistakes, I would have made other ones. And uh, yeah, that's kind of how I look at it. 
Yeah, I think that's a healthy outlook. Awesome. Um, I'm healthy. So, and, and <laughs> yeah, I'm healthy. I'm healthy. How do you know if you're healthy? Well, I'm happy. So, um, so my vision in closing, my vision and belief is that the greatest threat to the current LDS church is, isn't its shady history and it isn't their cult-like practices and it isn't their continuous uh, appearance on the wrong side of social issues. (laughs) I actually believe it's the, growing body of thriving and productive and happy, healthy post LDS members of the church. What are your thoughts on that? I don't think it's a threat. I, I think, think now, I mean, I, I, so like what, why, why do you frame it as a threat to the LDS church? You know, I, it's interesting you ask that because that is the word that I've been going, I need to fix this word because it didn't feel right to me. But I, I, when I, when members who are really active in believing start seeing a body, a large body of people who have tremendous coping skills and they're happy and they're living productive lives, it's, it's, to me that creates more cognitive dissonance than reading history because I read the history over and over and I still was able to manipulate it back in, into making the church true. But when I see somebody living a happy, directed, fulfilling life, that's when I'm like, how can you do that when you don't have the gospel? Yeah. And so that's why I say that. But I I do need to open up to how can I arrange the word that maybe it's just like this, the subtle change or that I'll have to work on it. But maybe I, yeah. I, so I, I guess, I guess my, my thoughts is that I, I think that the church plays an incredibly valuable role in hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people's lives, you know, uh, and, well, and this in mine for sure. Yeah. And, and it still does in mine. It just does it in a very, very different way than it used to. Yeah. Before. Um, w- one of the things that um, was really influential to me over the last few years is uh, a guy named Emil Durkheim. Have you heard of Durkheim? No. Durkheim was a French philosopher. I think he lived 1870s, 1880s, something like that. But he, he, he witnessed the French Revolution. So when was that? When was the French Revolution? Oh, don't ask me history. I, don't know. <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> but he, he, he witnessed the impact of atheism on the population of France. He himself was an atheist. Huh. But he, he noticed that... Um, among the subset of the population that were atheists, there was an increase in depression, an increase in suicide. And he predicted that as the world became more secular, um, which was a response to, you know, like the, the abuses of power that you see in monarchy where they say, God is the one that gives me authority to yoke you. And people say, no, we don't believe in God, AKA we don't believe you have the ability to yoke us, which is the birth of atheism. Um, that, that as people become more secular, there's this hole that's not being filled. And what Durkheim, there's a great Ted talk, um, that's Jonathan Haidt. I think it's called the ecstatic religious experience. And Jonathan Haidt talks about this in the Ted talk. He talks about Durkheim said that people are homo duplex. We, we have a dual nature, um, the, the sacred and the profane. And the profane is when you take care of your own self needs. 
Um, and that's, I don't know why I call it profane. And then the sacred is more elevated. It's the realm of the group. Communal. Uh, yeah. Communal connection. Um, and, and he talks about in times of war, you know, soldiers when they feel really and inspired that they're going to, it's, it's not about themselves individually. It's about who they're fighting with their, their brothers and sisters in arms or who they're fighting for. And, and so when you go more secular, you don't really have anything to fill that sacred space, that connection, because that's what religion has been doing for so long. Mm -hmm. That's the role that it's been filling. And humans have co-evolved with this institution to fill this need where, you know, how many hundreds of thousands of years were we in small, were we in small communal groups of like a hundred to 150 people that were bound together by our shared mythology and we've evolved to, expect that. And so I think Mormonism does an awesome job of filling the realm of the sacred for, for these homo duplex people that need that. They, they need the sacred, they need the profane and Mormonism does a really, really good job on that. So I don't know that a threat to Mormonism is uh, a great idea or a great endeavor. <laughs> I don't know that it's really even relevant. I don't know what it means, you know, like, so what the Mormon church is going to fail or, uh, I, I think I think with every person who leaves the Mormon Church, the Mormon Church has succeeded, because the Mormon Church, in, in my case, yeah, in in my case, it became the the grist for the mill. It, it was the the stone that my knife was sharpened against. Mm -hmm. uh, I love that. And and so I I can look at the Mormon Church without having any kind of anger or animosity towards it or or for me what's more is like the the arrogance the superiority and the looking down like I know more than you people do you know that's been my big struggle um, and that was that was a struggle that I had when I was attending and I would look at people and think oh you're stupid and I didn't like thinking that I didn't you know I don't like feeling that so I I, I see the church now as playing an incredibly valuable role in the lives of its members. And when somebody is converted to the principles of the gospel, like love and charity, and then they see hypocrisy and they're brave enough to stand up and go, you know what? I'm going to stand for love. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to stand for bigotry masked as love. I can see through that and I'm willing to accept the social consequences of standing up and speaking my mind it's, it's incredibly brave. Um, and, and so for somebody who's been able to do that, to, to just take a moment and hug themselves and just love themselves for what they've done um, and recognize that, yeah, you, you, you grew up in a culture where you got that validation largely from other people around you, your, your leaders, authority figures, parents, mm -hmm. tap, patting you on the head when you do the right thing. Well, be that for yourself and you know what the right thing is and you're doing it. So I, I, I guess the, I, I don't really think of threats to the Mormon church as um, very helpful for, for the way that I look at it. I, I'm happy for the Mormon church to continue to be strong and continue to do what it's doing. And they, they do a lot of good for a lot of people and they also, you know, create a lot of conflict well, it still it still becomes the the arena whether you're in or out, whether you know you've transitioned out or you're still you know growing within it. It's still the arena in which we're all growing, and we're some of us are using it as the backdrop, and some of us are just diving hard into the pool. And yeah. but wherever we are on the landscape of the Mormon 
you know, arena, it's still helping us to grow, whether we're looking at yeah. uh, why it's not true and why, or why it's not working for me or why I need to, to move on because church attendance isn't working for me. You're still learning. You're still growing regardless of whether you're attending. Yeah. And it can be incredibly painful to mm-hmm. go through that. And, uh, you know, so, so to, to your question about emotions, there was times I felt a lot of pain. Mm-hmm. Times I felt very alone. Um, I, I remember being called into a bishop's office once being told that I need to be careful with what I say around people because not very many people can balance, uh, you know, like I, I used to feel like Atlas carrying this shoulder, you know, the world on his shoulders that like, of course, doubt's good. Doubt makes your faith stronger. You know, yeah. doubt, they're like, no, we're not supposed dumbbells. to doubt. <laughs> And he's like, yeah, most people doubt just crushes them. And so you got to be careful with that. It's a really lonely place to be where you are and shut up basically is what he was telling me in a nice way. Yeah. Uh, and well, and but was, I love what you've done to make it not lonely. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah. Thank you. It's not a lonely place for you anymore because you've, yeah. you've collected voices that were, and you know, people who were having the same experience of you because you were willing to be brave enough to cross that line and say, I'm just going to say what I'm feeling and I'm going to, voice some things. And if, if you agree, great. If you don't, then move along. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. I like how to me, it's, it's very healthy. (laughs) So anything, any other advice that you have for people who are transitioning out? Just be, be easy. Like be kind to yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Another thing that, um, as I was mentioning different tools that have helped, um, I think is it Dr. David Burns, who's the one that does the cognitive um, behavioral therapy. I think there's a book called Feeling Good that he wrote. Let me look it up real quick. Um, But he talks about cognitive distortions that that we have, these different thought patterns like... uh, catastrophic thinking or all or nothing thinking or you know just these different things that the culture that we're we're raised in can have an impact on the way that we see ourselves and the way that we see other people in the world around us um so if you can learn your own cognitive distortions because we all have them yeah it, mm-hmm. the book is called feeling good the new mood therapy by david d burns um it's fantastic it's great to, to be able to start recognizing, oh, I'm doing it. I'm doing all or nothing thinking. I'm discounting the positive again. Oh, I'm, I'm catastrophizing. You know, so if, if you can start learning how to do those things, paying attention to that in your own life and be kind to yourself. Yeah. As you become realize, the observer of yeah. your mind and you see that wild, un, undisciplined mind when you start looking at it, be kind. I I agree. And become the author. Because if, if, if you're one of those ex-Mormons that goes, oh, everything in, in Mormonism is BS, it's all just a bunch of BS, then, okay, well, then what, what is truth? Where is truth? If, if, if meaning can be created through fictions, what's your fiction? What story are you going to tell? And, you know, if you think that you're not telling yourself stories, you've got some, you've got some things to learn because we're all, we're, we're all stuck in our own stories and their stories. They're all fictions. 
Like yeah. everything is a fiction. So yeah. I've got this new theory of everything that's called the Rorschach theory of everything that where I, I, I it doesn't really matter what it is to me. Um, the, the real value in, in looking at something isn't how true it is, but it's what you make of it. Yes. Like, you're, you're the one that creates the meaning. Yeah. 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 Um, and that doesn't mean that there aren't facts that you can just change the facts in your mind. No, but it's your response to these things. Um, and I think too often people are looking at these, like whether it's scripture or beliefs or teachings, that they all have to be in conformity with each other. And that conformity is the real standard for truth. And so we're worried about getting the most precise Rorschach ink blot and making sure that my ink blot is the one and true ink blot. But it's just oh, how beating. are you responding to it? <laughs> It's so different for every single person. Yes. And and accepting that and loving that and loving other people when their differences. And yeah, that's my advice. Well, I love your religion. <laughs> thank you. Your religion. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for sharing with us. You're welcome. Baby, come back. Any kind of fool could truly see. There was something in everything about who you Baby, come back. You can blame it all on me. I was wrong. Hello, brothers and sisters. This is Elder E. Eldon Elderman of the Seventh Quorum of the Seventy. When I'm not interviewing children about their masturbation practices, I monitor the Infants on Thrones podcast for the Strengthening the Members Committee. If you really like what you hear, you can jeopardize your eternal salvation by giving the quorum a five-star rating and writing a short review on iTunes. I didn't, but that's because I want to be resurrected with my genitalia intact. Anyone for the closing prayer? Baby, come back. Any kind of fool could truly see. There was something in everything about you. I release control and surrender to the flow of love that will heal me. Thank you for listening to the Empowered Former LDS Podcast. Now, if you found today's episode interesting or valuable in any way, please share it with someone that you care about. You can also give us a five-star rating and write a review on iTunes, Spotify, or whatever podcast platform you use. You can find Wendy and Glenn at the Empowered Former LDS group on Facebook, 3.1 thousand members strong, where you can also discuss this episode with others and sign up yourself to share your own story and thoughts about empowerment on this podcast. Thanks again for listening, and remember... Wherever you're at, whatever is going on, you got this.